This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It's the kind of problem many governors might love to have, how to divide up a $9 billion budget surplus. But unlike many states, Minnesota's government is divided, with Democrats in control of the House and Republicans in charge of the Senate. And DFL Governor Tim Walz is in a situation where lawmakers are already stuck on how to give money away. Add to that concerns about inflation, rising gas prices, a spike in violent crime, two years of COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, and many people just seem downright grumpy. That's not exactly great news for the governor as he heads into his campaign for a second term. Governor Tim Walls joins us now for the first half of the program to talk about his priorities for the legislative session and how he sees things shaping up as the campaign season gets underway. Governor, thanks for coming on. Good to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, Delighted. Uh, Let me ask you about uh, the news first. Uh, The Minneapolis School District and striking teachers and support staff have a tentative contract deal. Many of our listeners uh, wanted to ask you why you didn't take a bigger or a more prominent role in trying to settle that strike. Well, first of all, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited for our students, our parents. I'm excited for our, our teachers and support staff. And and for our state, um, there was a lot of commonality in this of making sure that our schools are fully funded. We have mental health uh, services available, and, and we're modernizing our education system. As far as being involved with this, this is uh, these labor agreements are an important part of of how our country works. Uh, there is a uh, a little known state agency called the Bureau of Mediation Services that's at the heart of these decisions. Um, I was getting briefed multiple times a day. Our mediators, again, are independent. They need to be. Um, it's not right for me to put a, a finger on the scale, but I have been very, very clear that this was needed. Um, I have made the case that passing the supplemental budget, especially around education, will cut these things off in other districts because your listeners out there are hearing across the state recognize this is going to be something that challenges other districts. So um, the process worked itself out. We are actively engaged in the appropriate manner that we should. And I think using my time to to advocate for the need for uh, changes to how we fund education, uh, not relying so much on property tax, and then a recognition that coming out of COVID that we need to do some things differently. So we're engaged. We're, we're happy with this tentative agreement. Um, super excited Monday morning when those kids get back in the classroom. Well, you have proposed a pretty, a pretty big increase in school spending on top of what was a pretty big increase that the legislature agreed to last year. How confident are you that that school funding piece will be part of an end-of-the-session deal? Well, I'm pretty confident, and I'm a realist on this when you hear folks that we do have divided government. And I think contrary to what some may say is that can be a positive. By definition, everything we've done over the last few years has been pretty bipartisan, certainly around budgeting. Um, I'm confident that uh, lawmakers are hearing, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, they're they're hearing from their schools uh, the need to do this. We're in a position where we can. Um, all of this coming on, you know, three years of the largest middle-class tax cut in 20 years. So this surplus that was created by changes in, in spending that created corporate profits gives us a chance to, as you heard in your stories mentioned, um, looking to the future around labor, about preparing that workforce. That, that's why this is investment. And so the business community advocating everything from child care to these investments in early education, they're with us on this. And, and I think that's why there's good reason to believe that we can get this done. Well, uh, you said that uh, divided government can be a positive sometimes, but why has it been so hard in this, these early weeks of the session to give businesses a tax break and uh, 
frontline pandemic workers a bonus. Uh, you you support that yeah. plan to spend two point seven billion dollars out of the surplus to replenish the unemployment insurance trust fund. That would that would hold down taxes for businesses. You uh, right. you support another billion dollars for the bonuses, but the House and the Senate just can't seem to to reach a deal. Why not? Yeah, well, I think need to take yes for an answer sometimes. And and I think you sum that up right. You know, just to be clear, our unemployment insurance in this country is is an incredible anti-poverty program. It it was sprung out of the New Deal and the Depression. It works. Our businesses paid into it, and we paid out to our workers during a time of a global crisis. Uh, it worked. Now it's time to replenish those funds. We have the capacity to do that, both with some federal funds from COVID relief that was targeted for dealing with COVID and its aftermath, and, and plus this surplus that's created. Um, we also made promises, voted on, and I signed into law, um, the need to address the frontline workers who took a, a more of the burden on during COVID, whether they were caring for us in the emergency room or whether they were processing our food or whether they were on the streets as EMTs uh, at a time when we didn't have a vaccine. And we were asking people to be there as well as child care workers so the rest of us could go to work. Um, it makes sense to me that, that this isn't an ideological difference. It's not Republicans asking for a tax cut in this deal. And it, it's not Democrats asking for a new program. It, it's doing things that are both good for the economy. You can't separate workers from businesses. And, and the case I'm making, Mike, is is that we're still left for a very robust discussion on the other $7 billion. So I think at this point in time, there's some new personalities involved in this. I think um, we're going to have to recognize, and I wish people would continue to say so, I'm not going to get everything that's in my budget. And that doesn't mean I'm negotiating with myself. It means that I'm opening the door to compromise with the things that the Republican Senate wants to try and do. So I think what it is, Mike, it's a little early. I'm frustrated that it didn't get done earlier. I do know that those businesses need that certainty and those workers need that frontline pay. We'll get this done, but it's going to take it's going to take folks stepping a little bit and saying, OK, I'm willing to give here to do this. Governor Tim Walls is with us uh, for the first part of our program this hour. Uh, we'll be talking uh, more in depth about inflation during the second half uh, when the governor has to leave. But uh, let me ask you, Governor, the uh, legislature's had a hard time reaching deals for a while now. Um, plenty of special sessions the past few years, even before you were governor. Does this uh, early holdup make you worried about how things are going to shake out in May or end up in May? It does. And and I have been a legislator. I would argue that there's a nature of deliberative bodies. Um, they tend to, you know, wait to the last minute because they're still trying to get the best deal. I don't even think that's necessarily a pejorative. I think what's changed is, is this, this rigidness that not only is my position right, your position is so wrong that I can't compromise one inch on it. There are going to be some of those issues that we just have to take off the table and say we're for another day. But when it comes to, you know, whether it's the relief on the UI trust fund, whether it's maybe taking a look at um, both checks back to people, paid family leave investments in education, um, we blow past deadlines as if they don't matter. And and I, I do think we need to keep to that. And and we need to get out of this idea that that compromise is somehow a a vice. It is not. It's a virtue in, in a democracy. It requires us to do that. And I think the national narrative around, you know, just the, the strict divisiveness that, you know, the other folks don't just see it differently. They they don't like the country or like the state. Um, I feel like Minnesota still has the capacity to do that. We've passed three budgets, um, two major and a supplemental. Um, we passed a historic bonding bill. 
Um, we've dealt with uh, other issues that have come up, and, and we need to get this done. There, there are some things that shouldn't be that difficult. And, and I think if we would look more to Minnesota, look to more of Minnesota tradition, and, and not look to what we see as this, you know, the national political landscape that is, that is if you compromise, you're somehow seen as unpure amongst your party, and, and then that can't be the case. Well, it's probably way too early to ask this question, but it, there's nothing you really have to get done this session. The budget's balanced. You got nine billion in, you know, over. Uh, if there's not a deal by the constitutional deadline to adjourn the session in May, are you inclined to call a special session, or would you, would you just let the voters decide and go from there? Well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I think it would be a. a, a a really wasted and missed opportunity. Things like drought relief that should have been done last summer. Uh, these checks in people's hands, as you mentioned, dealing with global inflation um, and and real costs, whether it's food, gas, um, to make a difference because we have the capacity to do that. Um, to give some certainty to business going forward and and to make these investments that that everyone is telling us on things like childcare. Um, that would have a huge long-term economic growth um, for us. So, uh, you know, doing nothing, I guess, is an option um, for folks. I, I think it would be a, a capitulation of our responsibility. Um, I, I think we would miss opportunities, and I think we need to be careful that we are in one of the strongest positions in the country coming out of COVID economically, COVID numbers and all of those things. Um, but that can be fragile. You talked about that, the uncertainty of uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, issues around, um, you know, the inflationary costs. And then, to be honest, uh, people are feeling a real sense of urgency on issues like climate change uh, and, as you said, violence, gun violence and things. So, you know, we got proposals out there that put money into communities that are actually lowering crime rates. To not do that just doesn't seem to me to be doing the job you're elected to do. Well, uh, let me ask you about something you touched on there. Uh, Republicans in the Senate say they want permanent tax cuts. You have proposed one-time checks, $500 for individual taxpayers, $1,000 for couples. Why is a one-time payment better than a permanent tax cut when there's a $9 billion surplus? Yeah, and I have proposed some permanent moves in there, as we've done before, um, child care tax credit and some of those things. The Republicans are proposing uh, billions of dollars of ongoing, and, and that would reach to the top folks, folks you see in the newspaper lately making $100 million plus, you know, the last year or two. Um, what that does is there's no guarantee of a permanent surplus, but you would have a permanent deficit at that point in time. And then, you know, and you some may argue that this might be, you know, not a flaw in the system, but designed that you end up underfunding things like education or road construction or health. And, and I think with such an uncertain economic environment that it makes sense to get this money back out um, to folks, pay off our bills, create the rainy day fund, invest, you know, that aren't adding long-term costs. And then let's take a look at it. If this economy continues to recover the way it's been, if we see a surplus again, the taxpayers are right about this. You budget for what you're going to spend. You agree on that. You collect the revenue necessary. And that should be as close to zero as you can to, to, to offset. If it continues to be either too low or too much, you need to make decisions. I just don't think in this volatility, where keep in mind a year ago, we were looking at a $4 billion deficit. Um, that changed, surprised economists. And I don't think the post-COVID economic structure has shaken itself out to the point where Minnesotans are willing to put our long-term economic well-being at risk um, 
but I'm open to having the discussion around those targeted cuts, um, at least what we're seeing right now. And it's it's not out yet. The difference is, is that I'm required by law to get budgets out, you know, first part of the year. Um, the Senate and the House can watch a little bit. Uh, with that being said, I want to see what they propose, see it on paper, and then let's talk. Well, one thing they have proposed is uh, cutting any income taxes on Social Security income. Uh, why not use this surplus to do that, eliminate that tax once and for all? Yeah, and I, I reduced that in my first budget and proposed it. But I think, just to your listeners, to be clear, the tax and the bulk of the tax on Social Security is federal. Um, it was started in, in the mid-'80s. President Reagan put it in. But, but there is a floor that goes on this. So for Minnesotans receiving Social Security, 60% of people pay nothing at all, no state tax on their Social Security. And then it's a sliding scale that you're taxed on the percentage that goes up depending on how much you make. And the proposal by the Republicans would send 90% of the tax cut to the 10% of wealthiest Americans, um, meaning, or wealthiest Minnesotans, meaning folks who have other retirement incomes um, would see the largest cut, while the bulk of Minnesotans um, would see a smaller cut. I said I am open as I was and proposed myself uh, in the first one and got through is I thought that seat, that floor should have been raised some. And I'm open to that, but I, I'm not open because again, these dollars are turning right around and being used as Minnesota entered as one of the few states as an age-friendly state. It's a reason why groups advocating for seniors like AARP do not advocate for the full repeal. And they think Minnesota's structure where we exempt the vast majority of people. If you're depending solely on Social Security for retirement, you're not paying tax right now. Under the Republican proposal, that money would go back to to wealthier Minnesotans. But I'm open to changing, as we did last time, what that floor looks like. Uh, you know, last year, early on, you proposed a tax increase, an income tax increase on the state's highest earners, a new tax bracket. Would that still be on your agenda if you were reelected? Uh, no, not right now, not with where the uh, the proposal is. I think leadership requires you to adjust where the situation was. We proposed, uh, for example, we needed to fix our roads and bridges. And I asked for Minnesotans to update what was at that point in time a, a very outdated. We're in the, the bottom half on gas tax. Well, gas was 157 and we didn't have a federal infrastructure bill. We now have a federal infrastructure bill and gas is three ninety nine. So it doesn't make sense at this point because we have the resources to do it. I think the same thing on those highest earners. I, I don't do it as as a punishment. It's not a class envy thing, but Minnesota and this country, but especially Minnesota, has a progressive income tax system that serves us very well. And and it, it lifts all boats, if you will, and it makes sure that all Minnesotans live a higher quality of life. And so the outcomes we get in terms of Life expectancy, quality of health, home ownership, those things raise because of the way we do that. I think at this point in time, watching where the surplus is, um, that it would not necessarily be there. That's, though, at the point where we need to continue to invest to grow. So even those folks at the top continue to grow, investing in things like child care, education, paid family and medical leave that attract people to our state um, and continue to grow. Talking with Governor Tim Walls this hour for about another eight minutes or so. Uh, this is NPR News. Governor, let me, uh, I'm sure you know this, uh, the Republicans who want to run against you, uh, probably most notably Scott Jensen, they, they say basically you overreacted to COVID-19. Uh, you shut the state down for too long. 
Uh, you 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 weren't subtle with your approach. It was too much of a sort of a meat cleaver and not enough of a scalpel. How do you respond to that? Well, it's false, first of all, and outside groups looking at this, whether they be nonprofits or Politico that did an analysis. And when you look at Minnesota's, for example, uh, COVID per capita death rate, we're one of the 10, 12 lowest states in the country. Had I followed states surrounding us, for example, South Dakota, we would have seven to 8,000 more dead Minnesotans. But the myth here was, is that you couldn't also protect the economy. The economic numbers, the growth, the investments we're seeing, and the business longevity seem to indicate that Minnesota is doing better than than almost all of those. And I think for those that set back and take the critique during this time, we've delivered tens of millions of vaccines, tens of millions of tests. We've divided and made sure we've protected people from uh, from evictions. Um, we provided unemployment insurance. We actually did the governing piece of this that, that kept folks alive, and an ideology that you know, says we simply should have done something else it would be easier is, is, is not just Monday morning quarterbacking. It's it's disrespectful to the to the folks, whether they be the healthcare workers, whether it be my National Guard who was in long term care facilities. And and just to be clear, we took a very balanced approach. And again, when a political article I mentioned, they took in a whole bunch of factors, whether it be child well being, job security, economic growth, as well as the outcomes around COVID and the consensus they came to is five states took a really balanced approach that made a difference. And Minnesota was one of those. So, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I think when an average citizen says, you know, I would have done it differently. There's certainly things that when you look back reflectively now, what you know that you didn't know, then you could certainly make changes. But what I think is really dangerous is, is people who are in a position and and get some airtime to put out patently false information to fit a narrative that, that is not factually correct, it's not scientifically correct, and, and it doesn't match the outcomes that we're seeing. I, I think rooting against Minnesota is never a good place to be. Minnesota came through this strong, and they'll continue to go that direction. Well, let me just ask one more question about Scott Jensen, because he was here last week, and he told me he doesn't trust the CDC, he doesn't trust the state health department and that he believes the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19, that number is overstated. Uh, What's your reaction to that? Well, it's it's false to start with, and and I don't know, I can't can't speak what's going through someone's mind, but as I would state again is um, we have to be able to agree on a set of of given facts. One plus one is two, and, and these institutions that have been nonpartisan and, and done good work over the years um, provide us with some guidance. We, we verify with third party folks. We're very closely, with, for example, with Mayo Clinic on numbers. Uh, no one who does this and no one who's involved with this uh, agrees with any of that. And, and for the sake of Minnesota is, is that I had to make decision based on the best facts, the base science and, and the best what was long term for Minnesota, regardless of where the politics were. The decisions I made were not popular in many cases, but they were the right ones around what it was for Minnesota. So I just think um, undermining those things and telling people that um, it makes it hard then for, for, for people to get good information, which they need to make informed decisions. And that's what we will continually try and do. I'm very proud of what Jan Malcolm and the team did at Minnesota Department of Health. We are good partners with the CDC, but we're also, as I said, good partners with our healthcare system, with Mayo Clinic, and and those numbers verify what what we're seeing from CDC and from others. So it's just simply not the correct, it's just not correct data. 
Would you support any changes to the emergency powers you use during the pandemic uh, to limit them or, or, you know, otherwise make it so there's a little more consensus uh, if something like this ever happens again? Well, I'm always open to that. I'm a legislator at, at heart on this. I'm, I'm, I'm not open again if it's to find a consensus around someone who's denying the facts. No, and, and the people have seen that the state has to move fast. For example, last September, our team, Mayo Clinic, others, predicted that there would be a surge at that time around Delta and as it morphed into Omicron. And there were certain things that needed to be done. Some of those I could do with emergency powers, like using the National Guard and doing some of those things that save lives. Other things I needed legislative help for. They're still debating those. Those are still debated today. Now, I've told them it it doesn't really make sense because that's over. But that's the difference. This is meant to, if there is an emergency, whether it be a man-made or natural uh, uh, tornado, and there's safeguards in place. They were given by the legislature and voted on by the legislature, and they have to be approved by the executive council. Now, if there are those that think there's a better way, um, I'm certainly open to it. But somebody has to take responsibility. Somebody had to do this. So I've got critics that have criticized the whole way who didn't have to give a single vaccine, who didn't have to see to a single nursing home had emergency staffing at 2 a.m. in the morning when all of their staff was down to make sure people were fed and cared for. Um, so there needs to be a place to act quickly. Um, and those those are granted by Minnesota statute. And I think in the outcomes of this, they served well. I get it. Some people did not want to wear masks, but it was the best advice and needed to be done. So I'm open to talking to them about it. But just because you disagreed, I think tying the hands of a future governor in a scenario that we couldn't have predicted a global pandemic there's probably other things that we're not able to predict as well. We need to make sure that there's flexibility to act in the best interest of Minnesotans' health. One thing that maybe we are able to predict, or a lot of people are predicting, is that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, could overturn Roe versus Wade this summer. If you are governor next year and further restrictions on abortions came to your desk, would you allow that to become law in Minnesota? No, no. Uh, a woman's right to her her healthcare decisions and her reproductive health um, is absolutely paramount. Um, these things do nothing to reduce abortions if you want to, but they put women's lives at risk. Um, Roe has been the law of the land and, and was not codified by it in the state of Minnesota. Um, we value people being able to make those decisions, and 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 I would not uh, I would not uh, sign anything that would that would prohibit. Uh, that safe access to to women's health and reproductive care. Governor, almost out of time here. A lot of people think Democrats are going to have a tough time in November, given the president's approval rating and things we've talked about, inflation, gas prices. What's your message and how do you intend to win this campaign? By giving a positive message of where Minnesota's going, people know my my record. They don't have to guess. Um, they, they've seen leadership. They've seen me stand up in front of them and say, I assume responsibility. Um, they've watched us invest in things that got us to a, a 20, almost 25-year low on unemployment and some of our largest growth that we've seen. And they've seen us take on and head on hard issues, whether it's it's public safety or whether it's uh, racial divisions. And And so I think what folks now at this time they generically would say, well, you know, we need to go in a different direction. We need to go this way. It becomes different when it becomes 
the, the leadership we've provided versus what you're going to see. And then it doesn't become nebulous or gas or, or Monday morning quarterbacking. It becomes real. And I think Minnesotans know we put their health and safety as a priority. We depended on science. We built coalitions. Um, we brought civility. You do not see me calling my opponent's names and you do not see me, uh, putting out factually false information. And I think when it comes time to what does a bright future look like or how do we navigate post-COVID, I, I feel confident that uh, that Minnesotans will give us that look. Governor Tim Walls, thanks so much for coming on today. I hope you'll come back as the year goes on. Absolutely, Mike. Have a great weekend. You too. That's Governor Tim Walls. I just want to tell you what we're going to do during the second half of the program. We're going to talk to uh, Lewis Johnston. He's a professor of economics at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University. We're going to talk about inflation. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It's an issue that we're all feeling every day and one likely to play a major role in this year's election. It's inflation. Prices have been rising faster than they have in decades, 7.9% in February, and that's before the impact of the war in Ukraine was fully factored in. So we thought this would be a good time to talk Inflation 101. What is it? Why is it happening? And what, if anything, can be done to counter it? Joining me to lead us through this at a freshman level, I hope, is College of St. Benedict and St. John's University economics professor, Lewis Johnston. Professor Johnston, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for asking, Mike. I'll try to keep it at 101 or even the lo- whatever we need to do. Well, that, that will be very helpful for me because uh, I have trouble paying attention sometimes. Let me, <laughs> let me uh, tell the listeners, uh, if you have a question about inflation, give us a call at 651-227-6000, 651-227-6000. If you still use the 800 number, you can use that one, 1-800-242-2828. Lewis Johnston, uh, let's start with a really basic question. We all know that inflation is rising prices, but what causes it? I've heard some people say it's it's too much money chasing too too few goods. Is that about right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's a good general description. Um, in a sense, it's that people want to spend uh, more on goods and services than the currently available amount of goods and services uh, are selling for, but. The question gets a little bit more complicated because it's like, okay, why is that happening? <laughs> why is there too much money uh, chasing too few goods? And there are two uh, kind of fundamental explanations for that. And both of them are at play here uh, as in the wake of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. The first one is that people have money in their pockets because we did a really good job uh bolstering people's incomes in the face of the pandemic. So we sent out checks twice in 2020, once in 2021. We expanded tax credits. We expanded unemployment compensation. We made sure that when people were in economic distress, they didn't cut back on their spending. So that actually is driving some of the inflation. It drove it a lot last year, still continuing to drive it some this year because people have money in their pockets and they want to buy things and they can't get a hold of them. And so they're willing to pay higher prices. So that's driving Mm -hmm. prices up. And sometimes economists will call that the demand side of inflation. It's people demanding goods and services. The other thing that's happening, though, is that we've had massive shocks in the oil market 
petroleum and also now in other commodities such as wheat uh, and some of the things that are used for fertilizer. Those are sometimes called supply shocks. The cost of the stuff we use to produce goods and services is jumping really fast. So the price of oil has jumped a huge amount over the last six months. When you mix those together, that's how you get to 7.9% year-over-year inflation. Hmm, a double whammy on both sides. Yep. Okay, you got a, it. a lot of Republicans in Washington are blaming President Biden. They say the COVID-19 spending he passed put too much money in the economy. And it sounds like, from what you just said, there's at least some truth to that. Yeah, there's a little bit in the sense that uh, if you would have had a smaller package in the spring of 2021, that might have kept inflation from being quite as high as it was. But remember, we had packages in March of 2020, and I believe it was in November of 2020, uh, that both were very big. And so the under, underlying cause of having you know a lot of money to spend, uh, I think, would have been there regardless of who won the presidential election in 2020. Hmm. You would have still had to deal with this. Okay, well, let me uh, hit you from the other side. Uh, sure. You hear people say that, but corporate profits are going up by double digits, and the corp- corporations basically are taking advantage of this situation and gouging their customers. Is there any truth in that? Especially the oil companies, people say that about. Well, in a sense, that they're just behaving the way that they they are <laughs> geared to behave. So, yes, there is some truth to that. If you look at corporate profit margins, on average, they actually are the same or a little bit higher. Um, and so part of it is that, but it's also... This is what economists, this is why economists, um, people get mad at us because we say, well, on the one hand, yeah, that's true. On the other, uh, the demand for things like gasoline and things like that are not terribly sensitive to price. And so people are willing to buy roughly the same amount even when the price goes up. Hmm. So uh, it's a combination of the companies, yes, going out there and raising their prices, but also consumers not having either the ability or the willingness to say, nope, I'm not going to do that. They just open up their wallet and say, well, okay, how much more is it? Hmm. Talking to Lewis Johnston right now on our program. He's the uh, professor of economics at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University. We're talking about inflation. Uh, we're, we're all feeling it and trying to get to some of the uh, causes and uh, maybe some of the solutions here. And we're taking your calls at 651-227-6000. Let's uh, hear from Ron, who's on the line from Young America. Hi, Ron. Hi. My question for Professor Johnson is, could inflation exist if the Fed had backed money instead of printing it and increasing the M2 supply? That's an interesting question, Ron. So, if the Fed issued money that was backed, say, by gold or something like that, I think is implicit in your question. And the answer is yes. You get inflation, deflation, these changes in prices, regardless of whether you're using money that's backed by something or whether you're using what's sometimes called fiat, F-I-A-T, fiat money, uh, money that isn't backed. It's more a matter of the Federal Reserve's policy of how much it's producing of that money and uh, how it's intervening in financial markets to set interest rates. Well, let, let me ask you about interest rates, because the Federal Reserve has already raised interest rates by half a point, and the word is out there that 
more increases are in the pipeline, maybe higher increases. What does that actually do to counter inflation? Um, first of all, it's only a, it was only a quarter point increase. Oh, I'm sorry. So see, just, I told you that's I have, all right. I have trouble. I, see, I didn't. I <laughs> I hesitate to 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 uh, um, to contradict you, but it's only a, it's only a quarter. But the, your point is a really important one. So the idea goes like this: uh, people who are spending, businesses, consumers, they are sensitive to interest rates because in order to buy big ticket items, cars, refrigerators, or if you're a business, you're building some addition to your buildings or maybe building a new building, uh, you either have to borrow money, and so you have to pay an interest rate, or you have to take money that you could be earning interest on and spend it. So the higher the interest rate is, the less likely you're going to spend. So the idea here is you're going to raise interest rates and slow down people's spending. And so that will bring the amount that people want to buy and the amount that's available closer together and slow down the rate at which prices are increasing. So in other words, if if the problem is too much money chasing too few goods, raising interest rates puts a puts the reins pulls the reins on how much money there is or how exactly. available money. Exactly. It makes it more dear. Okay, and so what's the risk there? It, that they will raise rates too high and people will stop buying and the economy will stall? That's it. So the the trade-off, as we like to always say, we there are always trade-offs, is that if we raise interest rates too fast or too high, or some combination of the two, we will slow the economy down too much, and so unemployment might rise, and we may even tip the economy into a recession. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the fear and policy discussions these days, because in the late 70s, early 80s, Inflation had gotten so high that the only way to kill it off in policymakers' minds was to put the economy into a deep recession. We had unemployment hit 10% by November of 1982. We had interest rates that had to go up into the 21% range. Um, I think people still remember that. It's kind of like a scar you look at on your finger after you've maybe cut it. You realize, I don't want to do that again. And so I think a lot of people are thinking, we don't want to go through that again. It seems like this, and I don't mean to denigrate your profession, but it seems like this is <laughs> far from an exact science because the Fed was saying earlier that they thought this inflation was transitory and as a result of the pandemic and it would it would sort of clear up on its own. And now they've sort of admitted that's not right. So, I mean, how when, you, when they start moving these levers around, how, how sure are they that it's going to work? Well, I, I think it's not denigrating us at all. I think you're pointing out exactly the problem that we have to deal with. And part of it is a communication problem that we should be communicating as a profession much more like uh, the weather forecast. We should be saying, well, there's a 20% chance of rain rather than saying, well, we think everything's going to be okay. Well, we ought to say there's a 20% chance that everything's going to be okay and a 50% chance, you know, we should we should couch it like that because... Um, basically, inflation is one of the least understood phenomena among what are called macroeconomists. Macroeconomists are people who study the big picture economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is we know what causes really high rates of inflation. When the Fed goes crazy or a central bank goes crazy and prints lots of money, that causes really high rates of inflation. But 
we really don't understand the details of inflation in the range we're talking about now. That's why I said there were all these different causes. That's because economists really don't know quite which one of those is the key cause. It's all of them. Hmm. Well, and, and you even see that, don't you, in, in some of the statistics. I mean, they say that the reason the inflation rate was so high in February is because certain things were more expensive, right? Like used cars and uh, and oil. Um, but at some point, it just seems like the price of everything goes up. That's right. And so that's where we have to start thinking about the interconnections. So, for example, if the price of oil goes up, so that's directly going to affect us because we have to pay a higher price for our gasoline. We have to pay a higher price for natural gas and fuel oil and, and anything else that's related. Uh, but then we get a second round effect of, yeah, and all the things that we buy use oil either indirectly or directly as an input. And since that price has gone up, that's going to make the cost of the things that we buy go up. And so that's why people uh, in my profession are worried about what's sometimes called getting uh, embedded inflationary expectations. There's a fancy term, but it's the idea of people expecting these prices to keep on going because of these second round effects. And then it just becomes sort of a self-perpetuating problem, I guess. Exactly. And so that's why there's a strong call for the Fed to raise interest rates, not only a quarter percent, but a half a percent and to do it at every meeting to show they are not going to let this happen. Okay. Uh, let's take another caller, Nathan, on the line from Rochester. Hi, Nathan. Yes. Hi, uh, Professor. Uh, really appreciate you uh, sharing your your knowledge with us today. Just a hypothetical. If you were at a dinner party and someone were to find out you're an economist and they were to say, well, that gosh darn President Biden, it's his fault that I'm paying so much at the pump. Um what, what would be your response to a comment like that? Or maybe you would say, maybe you would just avoid politics, but let's say you didn't avoid it <laughs> in that particular case. <laughs> yeah, it depends on who I was having dinner with. But but yeah. to answer your question directly, um, I, I would say it's not President Biden's fault any more than it's President Trump's fault in the sense that we – created a government response to the COVID pandemic, and we decided that we were going to try to prevent or at least cushion the blow of its effects. And one of the risks all along was if we do too much, it could cause inflation. And there were certainly policymakers, con members of Congress, um, economists who warned of this. And we made a political decision to go on to go big. Um, again, memory made a big difference. We chose not to do that in the face of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. We probably went too small in coming after that, and we had the result was that we had a very long and painful recovery from that. So I think we maybe overdid it this time. So no, I, I don't think it's President Biden's fault. I think we would have seen something very similar, at least in these macroeconomic terms, no matter who was in office. Well, if you were at that dinner party and somebody asked you, um, is the economy overheated? Is that part of the problem? What would you say? 
I, th- I think we could say that in late 2021, but now I think the problem more is these energy shocks. Mm-hmm. I think that's more what's the problem, that um, we probably would have had, as you said earlier, this idea of the transitory inflation. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I saw that in the data. I saw inflation starting to come down on a month-over-month basis in late 2021, but that just got hit in the face in January when it was pretty clear that Russia was massing troops on the Ukrainian border. Um, that story went out the window then. Huh. Um, let, let me bring it down to uh, local politics. Um, the governor has proposed sending everybody a check from, out of the budget surplus, 500 bucks, 1000 bucks. Republicans at the state capitol are talking about big permanent income tax cuts. Is this the right time to be pumping more money into the economy like that? Well, frankly, it, no. But in the, in the sense that it's at the state level, it probably isn't going to make much difference in terms of inflation and things like that. If we were having this conversation at the federal level, um, I would be really worried about that. And I would be counseling, no, we shouldn't be doing that. But to me, the issue here is more a matter of how certain are we about the future? Uh, are we so certain about the future that we can permanently reduce the revenue stream that the state government is receiving, or is this just a temporary bulge? And I'm on the side of trying to be cautious, and I, I'm more of the, I don't know whether it's, the, I don't know which political side's position it is, and it doesn't matter. I'm more of the position, though, that we should lean more towards um, short-term checks or refunds or things like that, and less on permanent tax reduction because uh, the forecast is pretty uncertain right now. We Hmm. really don't know. And I'd hate to have a budget surplus like we've got now swing all of a sudden to a big giant deficit. That's kind of what we did between 1999 and 2003. We went from Jesse checks and permanent tax reduction and permanent spending increases because the forecast said we were going to have surpluses as far as the eye could see to 2003 dealing with record deficits mm-hmm. and having to cut programs and things like that. I think it's much better to keep things on a more even keel so that you don't have to make these wild swings. Uh, talking to Lewis Johnston uh, about the economy, about inflation in particular, let's take another caller, Brian from St. Paul. Hi, Brian. Hi, thank you very much for taking my call. I appreciate it. Sure. I was. Uh, it's not so much a cause of inflation, but uh, but I was I was uh, wanted to talk a little bit more in terms of hedge. I'm very curious to know what uh, what, what the professor thinks. I uh, since 2017, I have been I've been buying and selling Bitcoin, and I know that's a scary uh, scary proposition for some people. But in 2017, the uh, the price was between one and two thousand dollars. And here we are five years later, and it's a it, it's over forty thousand. I think forty three, forty four today, something like that. I'm I'm curious to know because for me personally, this is this has been honestly the best hedge against inflation that I've I've been able to find. I, I'm curious to know why we don't hear a ton about it, especially when when countries like El Salvador and Panama are are actually making it legal currency. You know, okay. like a legal legal tender in those countries. I'm I'm curious to know why we don't hear a ton about it when when at least from where I'm sitting personally, it it has been an incredible hedge against inflation, which which they're telling us is eight percent. And if if I were to be frank, I would say it is probably two or three times more that. I'm okay. I'm curious to know what what you think. 
Sure. Um, I think, well, first I'm, I'm looking at the clock saying, how much time do you have? But <laughs> Bitcoin and what's more general, cryptocurrency is a really big issue right now. And I think, Brian, you've, you put the issue well in that um, rather than Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies being currencies, they are assets that you can invest in. And as you said, you can use them as a way to try to diversify your portfolio and try to hedge against or mitigate the effects of inflation. Um, the problem is, is that most of the time, some someone in the financial markets or a group of people in the financial markets find something that they think is the perfect hedge and then everybody goes into it and its ability to be the perfect hedge disappears. So gold is a really popular one. Like you should hold gold, some people say, because it holds its value and you'll be fine when inflation comes. Well, yes, that's true if the inflation comes hot and heavy. If it doesn't, you're going to be in deep trouble. And I think part of the same thing is going to apply to Bitcoin. Right now, Bitcoin's been, and cryptocurrencies in general, have been doing well, but there's a lot of uncertainty out there. For example, the government in China a few months ago outlawed cryptocurrencies that weren't issued by the central bank. So all of a sudden, people who were holding Bitcoin had nothing. (laughs) It was worthless. Well, what if the Federal Reserve decides six months or a year from now that they're going to introduce uh, a Federal Reserve digital currency called a Fed or something? Hmm. Well, what's going to happen to Bitcoin? People are going to sell those and they're going to buy up Feds. So, you know, I'm I'm long-windedly saying there's there's no perfect hedge. And I'm glad that you've been able to do it, Brian. Well, if if you weren't smart enough to buy Bitcoin three or four years ago, um, or you don't understand it, uh, what can an ordinary person do? Should you try to buy less for now? Should you try to look for, you know, the on-sale items at the grocery store, drive less? What's what's the best way for an ordinary person to deal with this inflation? I think all of those things, but on a really practical level, I would, I'm, I'm not, I want to be careful. I'm not Chris Farrell, so he's much better at this than me. But I would think in two dimensions. One dimension is the short term. Uh, given what your budget is, what are the things in your budget that are important to you? And what are some of the things that you could perhaps uh, put off? Now, some of us have a budget where there's nothing you can put off. So then you have to do like you said, uh, you know, maybe look for cheaper substitutes um, if you're uh, taking prescription drugs, try to switch to generics if you haven't already. Um, you know, try to find cheaper alternatives. But then that's the second piece is in the long term, um, are you what what do you think is going to be happening in the long term? If you think the price of gasoline is going to be permanently a lot higher, maybe when your car wears out or you are forced to buy a car because you're in an accident or something, uh, look at something that's more fuel efficient, something that's going to be easier on your budget or explore public transit options or something like that. I think you need to think on both of those levels. What can I do in the short term and what can I do in the long term? I know there's a lot of uncertainty because of the war in Ukraine, but how long might it take before the measures the Fed is taking have some impact on what's going on with prices? I think they're going to show up fairly quickly. So here we are at the end of March. They've raised uh, interest rates by a quarter, and already we're starting to see mortgage rates uh, climb 
lot uh, faster than that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see some effects showing up in the summer. Um, and certainly by, you know, let's say Christmas time, Thanksgiving, um, you're either going to see slowing spending, which you might see in unemployment not falling or maybe even rising. So like Minnesota has record low unemployment, we might see that start creeping up a bit. Or we might actually start to see the inflation rate drop. I think we'll see that by the end of the year. And uh, with the situation in Ukraine, and I'm going to be very unfair and say you have about 30 seconds, should we expect (laughs) gas prices to stay high and maybe the price of bread, things like that, to stay high? Yes. The short answer is yes. We've got a shock to both those markets, oil and commodity markets. And for the foreseeable future, those prices are going to stay up. Okay. Uh, one more question. Um, do I get class credit for this? <laughs> I think you audited. I think that's the way it counts. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, you know, you, everything. There was no exam. <laughs> you get, yeah. You, and you have to pay for everything these days. So I that's didn't pay right. a dime. Thanks so much for coming on. It was great to talk to you and very, very enlightening. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. That's Lewis Johnston. He's an economics professor at the College of St. Ben's and St. John's University. And that's our program for this Friday. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Maya Beckstrom is the producer. Jess Berg at the controls. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon. I'll be talking about what's happening at the legislature, the 2022 elections, and other things.